our message this evening is uh, October 12th, it's 2011, and our message is Islam, Understanding the Times. What a strange thing for a Christian church to preach on Islam, but I believe that there is a battle going on. In Matthew 24, Jesus said that kingdom would rise against kingdom and nation against nation. It was actually the other way around. He said nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And it sounds redundant. It's like, why would you say that? No, physical nations will clash, but the kingdom of light and kingdom of darkness are at war with one another. These spiritual powers manifest in very physical ways. This is why in the book of Daniel you see Prince of Persia, you see uh, Prince of Grecia, you see the chief prince who watches over God's people, Michael. You see angelic powers that are represented uh, or that nations represent. Those nations were the next uh, to rule the world in, in Daniel 10. And I say all that to say there is something going on with Islam that you have to stick your head in the sand to not notice. And I want to point it out tonight so that you will know where your role is. Many people are going to hear these things. They're going to look at our website. They're going to decide that we are anti-Islamic. Let me settle that question. I am anti-Islamic. I'm as anti-Islamic as you can possibly be, but I am very much pro-Muslim people. This is very much like hating a, a wicked religious institution but loving the people that it subjugates. Uh, my heart is for the oppressed, wherever they are, the captives, wherever they are. But I want to expose this for what it is and talk about our role. So what you see on the screen is Romans 12, 20 through 21. It says, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is a command to the church. It is a command that God gave us through the Apostle Paul. We are not allowed to sit back and do nothing while evil advances. Christians are not spiritual pacifists. We are not neutral. We don't surrender like France, and we do not remain neutral like Switzerland. Our job is to engage the enemy. And how do you engage the enemy? When your enemy is hungry, you feed him. When he's thirsty, you give him something to drink. You do whatever it takes to demonstrate Jesus, even if it means losing your life, like Jesus. Are y'all with me so far? Yes. See if this will work. I want to talk to you about the beginning of our country. This is not a message about our country, but it is the place in which we live and the climate is important. When we're thinking about Islam, there are some things that you may not know. Thomas Jefferson, who was uh, one of the founders of our nation, the principal author of the Declaration of Independence, the uh, creator of Jeffersonian democracy, had dealings with what was called the Barbary States. These uh, Barbary States were the countries in what is today North Africa, Northwest Africa. These are countries like Tripoli, Morocco, uh, Tunisia, these kind of countries that have been existent since before our founding. Y'all know in 1776 we had a little uprising with the British, right? Praise God for 4th of July. Uh, we did all right there. But we came out of that war with absolutely no Navy, right? The French had been carrying our water, so to speak, in the Navy. Uh, we, we didn't have ships built because we were colonies. 
Before the United States Navy was ever founded, something happened. We had merchant ships to go trade, and those merchant ships were being attacked by pirates. And when they were being attacked by pirates, the most unusual thing was happening. Those pirates were demanding tribute. So Thomas Jefferson and a guy named John Adams went to that area of the world. Actually, they went to France to meet with the people from the Barbary states. France hosted a kind of conference. And when they did, they found out that these people wanted tribute. And they didn't want tribute because uh, they were going to go buy lavish things. They wanted tribute so that they could buy more guns, build more ships, and capture more sailors. This was a little bit confusing to all of the Europeans and new Americans that were there because they were not motivated by amassing wealth. That was not the point to them. They only wanted to rearm. They only wanted to go further. Well, John Adams began to talk with an ambassador from Spain. And the ambassador from Spain said, look, the going rate for freeing your captives is about $40,000 a piece. And Thomas Jefferson was shocked. By the way, $40,000 uh, at that time was a lot of money. He was shocked. He said, you guys are paying this? Yes, we pay tribute every year uh, so that we don't have to deal with this. It's, it's less expensive than going to war. That didn't set well with Thomas Jefferson. John Adams actually wanted to do it, so they began to pay. The United States began to pay. The total sum, though, that they paid was somewhere around $600,000. And you know what? It kept happening. It kept happening. So when the sum that was being demanded reached one-sixth of the United States budget at the time, think about that. I mean, this is nearly 20% of the United States budget something began to happen. Uh, it really, we're going to go back and forth between a couple slides here. It really was summed up by this. Thomas Jefferson goes back, he meets with the Barbary states, and when he does, their ambassador meets with him. He's got a Koran in his hand. Thomas Jefferson came back and reported this statement to the U.S. Congress at the time. He said, it was written in their Koran that all nations which had not acknowledged the prophet were sinners whom it was the right and duty of the faithful to plunder and enslave, and that every Muslim man who was slain in this warfare was sure to go to paradise. He said also that the man who was the first to board a vessel had one slave over and above his share, and that when they sprang to the deck of the enemy ship, every sailor held a dagger in each hand and a third in his mouth, which usually struck such terror into the foe that they cried out for quarter at once. This is what Thomas Jefferson reported he was told. He got a copy of the Quran himself. Advocates of Islam often point out that Thomas Jefferson was uh, tolerant, that he was even pro-Islam because he and his library had a copy of the Quran. What you are not being told is the reason he personally had a copy of the Quran is he wanted to investigate this, what he was told. And as he began to investigate it, he came to one conclusion. He said the only way to deal with these people is through the medium of war. There is no other way. They believe that they are being pleasing to God by doing this. He said, you cannot pay them off. It will never stop. That's interesting because as that began to happen, see if I can go back the other way, the United States decided to do something. In 1798, the United States created a naval department. There was no Navy prior to 1798. And when the Navy was commissioned, 
The reason the United States Navy was commissioned, its sole purpose, was to make war on Muslim pirates from the North African coast. That is why we have the United States Navy today. They went out and immediately sunk a frigate from Tripoli. And uh, this was good news. Our Navy was successful, our very first venture. So we built six more ships. The problem is the USS Philadelphia was captured in one of the battles. Our very first event, the very first time in American history where we have something that looks like a marine invasion is being depicted in that picture. What happened was a guy named Stephen Decatur got off of a boat with a few guys and swam through the night and got onto the USS Philadelphia and set it on fire while the uh, Muslim captors were still on it. That way they could not use our warship against us. George Washington was still living at the time. He said it was the most uh, heroic act he had witnessed in his lifetime. This is how the United States began in dealing with Islam. With a president who understood what was at hand. By the way, our Navy wasn't built until Thomas Jefferson became president. But with a president who understood what was at hand and a populace that understood enough about the Bible and enough about what they were being told about Islam to recognize evil when they saw it and do something about it. Stephen Decatur has got a memorial in the U.S. Naval Academy today. The song that is considered the song of the Marines from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. We fight our country's battles in the air, on the land, in the sea. This commemorates that event. It commemorates the event where the United States recognized the signs of the time and said, we cannot fail to act. They didn't sit back and say, you know, this is obviously a religion of peace that has been hijacked by a few radicals. Instead, they built warships. Now, when I say warships, I want you to understand something. I am not militant. There is nothing about me that is militant. I know exactly what it is to stand my ground and have somebody punch me right in the face for the gospel. I've been spit on for Jesus. I've had a lot of ugly things happen to me in my life for Jesus. I have never thrown a punch at a human being as a Christian. I do not believe that the answer to any of this is violence. But the Bible says that we don't war as the world does. We have a different method of warfare, and I'll talk to you more about that as we go. The sixth president of the United States, John Quincy Adams, had some interesting things to say in his dealing with Islam. He said, with preternatural energy of a fanatic and the fraudulent spirit of an imposter, Muhammad proclaimed himself a messenger from heaven and spread desolation and delusion over an extensive portion of the earth. Adapting all rewards and sanctions of his religion to the gratification of sexual passion, he poisoned the sources of human felicity at the fountain. By degrading the condition of the female sex and allowance of polygamy, and, and he declared undistinguishing and exterminating war as part of his religion against the rest of mankind. 
Did you hear? That was an American president that said that about Islam. This is before the age of political correctness. This is before the time in which men called evil good and good evil. This was when you could still pray in school and the first 100 universities started in our country were seminaries. This was a time period where the strength of the United States was not found in the military, but behind the pulpits. This was at a time when people understood what it was to love the Lord. Understood what was at cost. And that when you fail to act, good people die. Winston Churchill, who defeated the Nazis, A degraded sensualism deprives this life of its grace and refinement. The next of its dignity and sanctity. The fact that a Mohammedan law, every woman must belong to some man as his absolute property, either as a child or a wife or a concubine, must delay the final extinction of slavery until the faith of Islam has ceased to be a great power among men. You hear that? Winston Churchill called this a disgusting thing. He goes on to say the influence of this religion paralyzes the social development of all who follow it. No stronger retrograde force exists in the world. That's saying something after you have witnessed Nazis burn human beings. But after that happens, the quote is after that happens, he says there's not a stronger retrograde force in the world than Islam. These men recognize something that our generation has forgotten. John Wesley, lest you think we're only speaking about politicians, the founder of the Methodist Church. Ever since the religion of Islam appeared in the world, the espousers of it have been as wolves and tigers to all other nations. Such was and is at this day the rage, the fury, the revenge of these destroyers of humankind. When we moved into this neighborhood church, our very first visitor was a man named Elton. We reached out to Elton. Some of you might remember. We helped him. We, we even paid him to work alongside us because he was broke. Elton answered the question correctly. He said that he was not a Muslim. Of course, Muslims are allowed to lie if they think that it will benefit them. As I got to know Elton, Elton could quote surahs in Arabic. Being an African-American young man, I found it odd that he spoke Arabic. So Elton, tell me, where did you learn these surahs in Arabic? Oh, well, you know, doesn't want to say. You were in jail, weren't you, Elton? Well, uh... Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I spent some time there. Why do you tell me you're not a Muslim when you most obviously are? Stutter, stammers, stutters around. An intelligent man. Speak two languages and quote uh, the Quran in Arabic. This is not a stupid man. Played a guitar as well. Very, very talented in a lot of ways. But he was intentionally deceptive with us. Why would he do that? Because the, the religion of Islam teaches it. It teaches it. It comes right out and actually teaches it, but I'll show you that. Ephesians 6 is an important scripture. I would normally tell you to turn there, but it's on the screen so that I can cover a lot of material quickly tonight.
It says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He goes on to tell us to put on the armor of God to take our stand. Guys, when we see these things going on around us, when you see the nations raging, when you see a populace growing within our country that is not an immigrant population, it's a colonist population. It's not someone who wants to assimilate and become American. It is somebody who cannot wait until there are such numbers in which to make you Muslim. When we see these things happening, something has to happen. Not in defense of our country. Not in defense of our faith. In the name of what is right, at some point, doesn't the Christian church have to speak up? Don't you have to decide to do something about it? When is the day? He doesn't say if the day of evil comes. He says when the day of evil comes. What if the first century church had treated Romanism the way that we treat Islam? Oh, I'm sure the Roman emperors are really good men who've just been hijacked by a few bad thoughts while they kill 50,000 at a time. What if the whole world continued to stand by and said, well, I'm sure Nazism's not such an evil thing. It's just a few evil people within it. What if we did that? This is against all evidence. It's, it's complete data denial. Everybody claims that there are moderate Muslims everywhere, and yet you cannot point to any of them. Well, wait a minute, Eric. There's all kind of Muslim population right here in this country that are doing just fine. If they act like Muhammad, if Muhammad is their goal, then we need to see what Muhammad was like. But we'll get to that. These are strange times. The times have changed. Americans are less biblically educated than we've ever been. After Bethany World Prayer Center evaluated their 12 grades of, of private uh, school training, right? A, a powerful, spirit-filled church that's done a lot to change the face of the earth, especially in missions. After the pastor evaluated 12-year students, people that had been there from first grade to 12th grade, he could not find a significant percentage of them that could tell him from the top of their head what Romans 12 was about, what Corinthians 12 was about. Could not quote Corinthians 13 or a single psalm from the Bible, and they had been through 12 years of his school. He wrote that in a book called The Remnant. There's never been a time in American history where Americans were less educated about the Bible than right now. And you know what else we don't know about? the other religions of the world. We practice them from time to time. We marvel at them from time to time. But you heard Woody stand right here from Sri Lanka and tell you, I know you've all heard Buddhists were peaceful. Of course, they burn houses in his country and cane people. You've all heard that Hindus are peaceful, that Muslims are peaceful. Look at what the religions are producing and then come and tell me that. Where did we hear these things? In a classroom? Or did you experience them? Americans are less educated about Islam, and American presidents are simply different. Assalamu alaikum. Boy, I spent several years in Indonesia and heard the call of the Azan at the break of dawn. In Ankara, I made clear that America is not and never will be at war with Islam. In fact, faith should bring us together.
and Turkey's leadership in the alliance of civilizations. The Quran tells us, be conscious of God and speak always the truth. The Holy Quran teaches that whoever kills an innocent is as, it is as if he has killed all mankind. The Holy Quran tells us, O mankind, we have created you, male and a female, and we have made you into nations and tribes so that you may know one another. People of the world can live together in peace. We know that is God's vision. Now that must be our work here on earth. Thank you. And may God's peace be upon you. Peace on earth sounds so wonderful till you realize what it means to Islam. It means you submit to them. It means you live as a Muslim or as somebody who's been denigrated. Nearly everything that was said in that speech is contradicted in the Quran, and I'm going to show you that. This is not an attack on the Democratic Party. This is a taking of the spiritual temperature of our nation. The climate has not only changed towards the way we view the Quran from the days of Thomas Jefferson, it's also changed about the way that we view the Bible. The Bible was once respected. It was what shaped our nation. Today, it's the punchline to a joke. we once were, we are no longer a Christian nation, at least not just. We are also a Jewish nation, a Muslim nation, and a Buddhist nation, and a Hindu nation, and a nation of non-believers. Which passages of scripture should guide our public policy? Should we go with uh, Leviticus, which uh, suggests slavery is okay, and that eating uh, shellfish is an abomination? Or we could go uh, with uh, Deuteronomy, which suggests stoning your child if he strays from the faith. Or should we just stick to the Sermon on the Mount, a passage that is so radical that it's doubtful that our own Defense Department would survive its application. sum it up, the Quran is called holy. The Bible's to be mocked and used as a punchline. This is kind of where we're at. But how did it get that way, church? Not a one-term one issue. This is a titanic problem and we're on an iceberg and we don't realize it. We have let things get this way because we have not spoken up, we've shut up. Instead of being unrelenting and fusing, refusing to let up. We sat quietly and folded our hands. This is not the calling of Christians. This is not how we're supposed to live. We're not supposed to fold our hands quietly and watch our entire community, our entire nation, go to hell in a handbasket. We're not supposed to do that. But apparently, as long as we have coffee houses in our churches, 
as long as we have donuts every Sunday, and as long as our kids are entertained, we're not concerned with whether or not we confront the evils of the day. What we want most is to know how we can be happier, how we can be more blessed, how we can be more rich or more healthy. This is not the calling of the church. This is not an American issue only. This is going on all over the world. There's going to be a video here in a second. need to know that the early influences on the nations that were mentioned. Do you remember we talked about Turkey earlier? That's where he was. Turkey was a Christian nation. This is where Paul traveled. He was in Turkey. He traveled there, planted churches there. Muhammad did not even live until six centuries after Paul. There was a Jewish population and a Christian population in Turkey before there was ever a Muslim population. But you'd be hard-pressed to find it now. What happened? How about Syria? We're going to hear that mentioned in a moment. Where was Paul on the way to when he had his Damascus Road experience? He was on the way to Syria. He was on the way to persecute Christians. He was a Jew, and so were all of the people I'm calling Christians. They were Jewish believers. Syria was once a nation that had Christians in it. Jews in it, and in sizable numbers. There were no Muslims there, but not today. Libya, biblical put, same story. Iran, biblical Persia, same story. Do you realize this? The heart of the Muslim world, the hot spots around the world today had Christianity in it within Paul's lifetime. Within 200 years of Jesus, these nations had huge populations of believers. But apparently Muslims were pretty committed to their cause. Egypt, where did Jesus flee as a boy? <laughs> Coptic Christians are among the oldest existent Christian population on the planet, unbroken. Never been rooted out of Egypt. They have been there since the days of Jesus. Now Egypt is Muslim. Watch this video. group says at least 17 members of the Syrian military and 14 civilians were killed in clashes over the weekend. Three died at a shooting during a funeral in Damascus. This video was provided by an anti-government group. Revolutionary forces in Libya say they have surrounded Gaddafi loyalists in the ousted dictator's hometown. Former rebels raised their flag at a convention center in Sirte. However, fierce fighting is still reported in some areas of that city. The case of the Iranian pastor sentenced to death for converting from Islam to Christianity has reportedly been referred to the country's supreme leader. Youssef Nadakarhi has, well, his stories received widespread attention. Seeking the opinion of Ayatollah Ali Khamenei is said to be an unusual move on the part of the Iranian judiciary. The White House is expressing concern over continued violence against Coptic Christians in Egypt. The leaders of that group are blaming military rulers for not protecting them. Correspondent Leland Vittert shows us what's happening in Cairo. In running street battles reminiscent of the Egyptian Revolution, downtown Cairo burned as thousands of Coptic Christians protesting another church burning fought riot police. The army brought in armored personnel carriers to run down protesters. They run them down with tanks, said this demonstrator, and shoot them with bullets like this one. 
Christians gathered Monday to begin burying the nearly 30 people who died this weekend. Coptic Christians in Egypt have always been under threat, but enjoyed protection from former President Hosni Mubarak. Since Mubarak's resignation, violence has increased with reports of Muslim gangs raping Coptic women with impunity. Did you hear some of these things? Coptic Christians have always been under threat. Muslim gangs were raping women, Coptic women with impunity. How is that possible if Islam is a religion of peace? Yeah. One of the things that, as you watch that, and I'm sorry that the audio is so messed up, but as you watch that, one of the things that is important is to realize these people ancestors go all the way back to Jesus in love with him now what is there today is kind of like Ireland where there's Catholic and there is uh, Protestant and maybe nobody on either side is a sincere believer anymore it's a heritage but the reason that these people are being run over with tanks the reason that they are um, having their wives and daughters abused and their churches are being burned is no other reason than they wear the name Christian. They may not even be sincere believers, but because they wear the name, that is happening. What an amazing thing. Islam actually teaches that the only way that you live peacefully with people of the book is if they show themselves subjugated to you. And subjugated, according to Islamic scholars, means that there's no penalty for raping a Christian woman. It means that a Christian or Jewish man should be denigrated in public so everybody understands he has something called demitude status. Islam is designed to displace Christians and Jews. It does it through conversion, subjugation, or death. And here's the key. Wherever Muslims are in the majority. The reason that you don't see some of these things in some areas is because it's not yet a majority. But you show me any nation that the majority of its population is Muslim, and I will show you atrocities against Jews and atrocities against Christians on a daily uh, scale. Daily. This pastor in Iran, they're appealing to the Ayatollah Khomeini. John, turn down these monitors. I'm dying up here. He appeals to the Ayatollah Khomeini. Why would the head of the religious nation have to be consulted about whether or not to kill a man simply for being a pastor? He's committed no crime. You know why? Because this is what Islam teaches. That's why. How long can we stand back and say, even though the vast majority of the Muslim nations in the world all support these practices and no one comes out and condemns it, it's not really what they believe? We better wake up, church. Amen. When thinking about Muhammad and Jesus... Listen to Jesus, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the selfish. That's Luke 6.35.
In the Quran, the third surah and the 28th verse, we hear, let not unbelievers take for friends or helpers unbelievers rather than believers. If any do that, in nothing will there be help from Allah except by the way of precaution that you may guard yourselves from them. The plain language of that text says, do not befriend them. And by the way, you are the them. How about this next one? If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust off of your feet and leave that house or town. Jesus never taught that we force conversion. Instead, Jesus said, if they don't want you, go to somebody who does. The most respected Islamic teachers of the 8th century that are still quoted with fluidity today and frequency today, like this Bukhari, he said, whoever changes his Islamic religion, kill him. And that would be something if it stopped in the 8th century. But it doesn't. Iran's considering executing a man for doing it now. Are you up here in that? Yeah. So what's the difference for us? Well, we're not in the minority here yet. Yeah. How about this one? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Muhammad said in the 48th surah in the 29th verse, Muhammad is Allah's apostle. Those who follow him are ruthless to unbelievers, but merciful to one another. Jesus teaches that we're to be merciful to everyone. Muhammad teaches be merciful only to fellow Muslims. In our library is a copy of the Quran, by the way. Next time tells you, somebody tells you it's a religion of peace, just go look at the passages I marked for you. Look, don't be angry. Don't be angry, or maybe we'll cut off heads. I mean, Jesus and Muhammad, pretty similar, right? Jesus says, you've heard that it was said from old, you shall not kill, and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Jesus taught us not even to be angry. What did Muhammad teach? Therefore, when you meet unbelievers, fight. Smite at their necks at length. When you have thoroughly subdued them, bind a bond firmly on them. Thereafter is the time for either generosity or ransom until the war lays down its burdens. But those who are slain in the way of Allah, he will never let their deeds be lost. Now, there are Islamic apologists everywhere. They will say, oh, these are taken out of context. We're only speaking about war. Of course, to them, war must be waged on anyone that does not believe what they believe. When you say war, we think of political problems. When they say war, they think of a natural way of life. Mm -hmm. In fact, Islamic children are taught to, div to divide the world into two categories. Those who are under the sword and those who have submitted to God. What does that tell you? Have you submitted to Allah? Then they believe you should be under the sword. That's how they are taught. They don't divide it into two hemispheres. They divide it into two categories. Muslim and get to be killed or Muslim. Bless or slay. Jesus said things like, blessed are you when men revile and persecute you. Muhammad said in the second surah, and slay them wherever you find them and drive them into the places whence they drove you out of for persecution is worse than slaughter. Jesus said you're blessed when you're persecuted. Muhammad said no, kill them because it'd be worse uh, for you to be persecuted. 
In John 3.16, everybody's seen baseball games. God so loved the world that He gave His Son. In the Quran, look at that chapter and verse. That's Surah 9, 111. Allah hath purchased of believers their persons and their goods. For theirs in return is the garden of paradise. They fight in His cause and slay and are slain. A promise binding on Him in truth. So the followers of Allah slay and are slain. This is a promise that is binding. Here's my personal favorite. I was always told that Muslims respected people of the book. Look at what Jesus said. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Interestingly enough, in the ninth surah, in the 29th verse of the Quran, it says, fight those who believe not in Allah, nor the last day nor hold that forbidden which hath been forbidden by Allah. By the way, that's pork. That's all kind of things. Uh, slay you if you, you uh, think we should eat shellfish. Uh, and his messenger, nor acknowledge the religion of truth, even if they are people of the book, Jews and Christians, until they pay the jiza with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. You'll hear all of the time, oh, no, no, Christian populations have lived in Muslim countries, and it's not a problem. They just have to pay higher taxes. No, it's a whole lot more than that, friends. You have to show that you are beneath them as human beings. And this goes on everywhere in the world. Have you ever met a Syrian Christian? Do you ever see them on TV? They have to look every which way when they speak. And if a Muslim man walks down that side of the road, they need to get on the other side. They are subject to absolute public humiliation. And don't forget... You know, it's okay to rape their wives and daughters. And we let this go on in the 21st century. And when I say we, I don't mean we the United States. I mean we the church. We let this go on. Because we say nothing, we do nothing as long as our lattes don't go up in price. The list keeps going. I mean, you could do this forever. It's easy, easy, easy to demonstrate how violent Islam is simply by reading the so-called, I mean... The president of our country calls it the Holy Quran. I could choke on those words. And by the way, George Bush, he said that Islam was a, a religion of peace hijacked by a few people. He couldn't be any more wrong. God bless him. You know, he needs to read it. He needs to read a copy and see if that was an honest statement. Look at the 60th surah in the fourth verse. There is for you an excellent example to follow in Abraham and those with him. When they said to their people, we are clear of you and of whatever you worship besides Allah. We have rejected you and there has arisen between us and you enmity and hatred forever. Unless ye believe in Allah and him alone. Enmity and hatred forever. This is what Islam teaches. John Wesley knew it. John Quincy Adams knew it. Winston Churchill knew it. Thomas Jefferson knew it. But today, we don't have the courage to say it. Our entire Navy was formed in response to this, but we don't have the courage to say it. And yet, that's not what I'm upset about. Okay? I've read more books on Islam probably than anybody in the room, and that's not what I'm upset about. I'm upset with the Christian response to it. All missions... All missions done worldwide in the last 50 years. 
less than 2% of it was to a majority Muslim country. Could it be that we're scared? Could it be that we're intimidated? Could that be what it is? Muslims are the least converted major religious group. I mean, it might be that the Baha'i or something are less converted. Of course, you'll never meet one. You can't go to Walmart without meeting a Muslim. My sister's health club, they are picketing outside of it and started their own Facebook page because they cannot wear their traditional dress in the swimming pool. Yeah, I said that, in the swimming pool. I mean, can you imagine? While I understand all that, what is difficult to understand is how we can be so apathetic to such a great danger as this. Not Muslim people. The spirit that is behind it. And it is an antichrist spirit that specifically denies the incarnation of Jesus. They're the only religion in the world that goes out of the way to say, God has no son, cannot have a son, and Jesus is not his son. According to 1 John, that is an antichrist spirit. This is a man named Gert Wilders, and uh, I'll read to you what he has there. The public has wholeheartedly accepted the Palestinian narrative and sees Israel as the aggressor. I have lived in this country and visited it dozens of times. I support Israel. First, because it is the Jewish homeland after 2,000 years of exile, up to and including Auschwitz. Second, because it is a democracy. And third, because Israel is our first line of defense. This tiny country is situated on the fault line of jihad, frustrating Islam's territorial advance. Israel is facing the front lines of jihad like Kashmir, Kosovo, the Philippines, southern Thailand, Darfur and Sudan, Lebanon, Ike and Indonesia. Israel is simply in the way. The same way West Berlin was during the Cold War. The war against Israel is not a war against Israel. It is a war against the West. It is jihad. He goes on to say, Israel is simply receiving the blows that were meant for all of us. If there would have been no Israel, Islamic imperialism would have found other venues to release its energy and its desire for conquest. Thanks to Israeli parents who send their children to the army and lay awake at night, parents in Europe and America can sleep well and dream unaware of the dangers looming. Many in Europe argue in favor of abandoning Israel in order to address the grievances of Muslim minorities. But if Israel were, God forbid, to go down, it would not bring any solace to the West. It would not mean our Muslim minorities would of all of a sudden change their behavior and accept our values. On the contrary, the end of Israel would give enormous encouragement to the forces of Islam. They would, and rightly so, see the demise of Israel, but the proof that the West is weak and doomed. The end of Israel would not mean the end of our problems with Islam, but only the beginning. It would mean that the start of the final battle for world domination. If they can get Israel, friends, they can get everything. This is an important thing, and the reason that I tell you is there needs to be a response. The response is not to be mad at Muslims. The response is not to go throw eggs at the local mosque. The response is none of those carnal things. The response is twofold. Number one, we need to support Israel at all, all costs, period. That is the litmus test of our time because Jesus said it was. Uh, he said uh, uh, in Genesis 12, uh, God said, those who bless you, Abraham, I will bless. Jesus said, whatever you've done unto the least of these, you've done unto me. Have you ever thought about who he was talking about? 
Those were not Scandinavian children he was talking about. They were not American children. They were Jewish children. Whatever you've done unto the least of these, you've done unto me, he said. Our number one response needs to be support for Israel along with evangelism. Listen to this. This is the heart of our message. Romans 10, 13 through 15. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Isn't that good news? Many of you have heard it and called on the name of the Lord Jesus, haven't you? How then will they call if they have? How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one on whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We work backwards from that passage that you were just given. The sent, preach. You have to be sent to go and preach. If you don't go, they're not going to hear, friends. The step one is you need to be sent to preach. I'm just curious, who feels sent to preach? Well, that's a funny thing. We say, well, that must be the calling of someone. I would argue that it's the calling of all. Jesus said that a city on a hill can't be hidden. You're the light of the world. If Jesus didn't send you to preach, who did he send? Well, maybe he sent Pastor Eric. He sent me to you. <laughs> and the rest of the world. Was the Great Commission really just for a select few, or were they for every believer that was on the planet at the time? That's an interesting thing. The saints preach. They preach so people can hear. That sounds very basic, but you need to get this. You have to go so that you can preach, and you have to preach so that they can hear. I'm not speaking about just to Muslim friends. That would be a great thing to do. I mean, since... 98% of the focus of American missionaries is anywhere but there. It would be a great thing to do. But you know what else? Since we have a little problem that if we're ever in the minority, you'll have to worry about your daughter walking to school. If we're ever in the minority, you might have come to see this building burned. If we're ever in the minority, you learn quickly what it means to be subjugated. How can you prevent being in the minority? Go make disciples. Don't you find it a little alarming? Just a little bit that Syria, Egypt, Turkey, Libya, all of these countries once had more Christians and Jews than Muslims and today have more Muslims than Christians? People are all concerned about the darkening of Europe, they call it. Well, friends, if Christians don't act like Christians, then that's just a sign of the spiritual condition that is happening. You think it's just happening there and it's just a Muslim problem? No. Our president of our country marks the Bible and no one says anything. And he's not alone. He, he's not even close to alone. In fact, he's in good company. We don't say anything anymore. These Muslim women at this health club cannot wear their burqas in the pool. You know what? They say something. It's offensive to them. They're so serious about following their religion that they're going to say something. If you're a Christian and you're in there and they're playing Baby Got Back and got Britney Spears and somebody dancing naked on the TV and you're with your 14-year-old son, what do you do? You might just not go. But you're sure not going to say anything. 
Somebody pulled our teeth. So I don't want to be one of those people. What do you mean one of those people? What do you mean by that? You don't want to cause waves? You're right. Jesus was trying hard not to cause waves. With 11 people, he changed the world. But somewhere around the year 630, a fanatic that was possessed with a satanic desire has conquered the nations that the early church inhabited. And now they're working on the ones that are here and, and the church is poised and ready to fight, right? No, not at all. I mean, not at all. We're interested in being blessed, healthy. That's, that's all we want to be. Nobody's crying and saying, Lord, if, if you desire it, I'll be martyred for you. I want to show your glory. I'd be crushed that you would be good. Nobody prays like that anymore. Keith Green said it right. Bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord. It's all I ever hear. No one weeps. Nobody even sheds one tear. He said the church was asleep in the light, and that was in 1984. I'm sure we've recovered. You need to be sent so you can preach. You need to preach so people can hear, because there's a promise in the gospel that those who hear will believe. Not everybody, but we know this one thing. It's kind of like when I carried that girl to the altar and she didn't get healed. <laughs> well, Eric, why'd you do it? She didn't get healed. Well, I know for sure if I didn't carry her to the altar, she wouldn't get healed. You know, when you are sent to preach, they will hear. And some of them that hear will believe. So, but they didn't all believe. Maybe most won't believe. Well, they surely won't if you aren't sent to preach and they don't hear. You've got to start somewhere, friends. Jesus preached to a whole nation, ended up with 11. But that 11 was worth it. We have to start somewhere. Who in your workplace have you sat down with and said, I need to tell you something, man. People are getting filled with the Holy Ghost in my church. Well, I don't want them to think I'm weird, Eric. Oh, we're those kind of Christians. When have you told your neighbor? I told my neighbor the other day what was going on in our church. And he's like, that's good for you. Uh-uh. Yeah, I go to church too. Uh, look, I'll see you later. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Come here. I want to talk to you some more. <laughs> Why not? What do you have to lose? How much worse does it get than going to hell? Let's just start there. <laughs> how much worse does it get? If they're already on fire, how much more damage are you going to do? Say, <laughs> so, well, I might get them upset. They're going to be pretty darn upset. Yeah. Matt, an hour later, it's your choice. Saints, we have to revive some evangelism. If they're going to believe, they have to hear it. And when they believe, they call. Here's the thing. When we preach, there's a response. The people begin to hear. And when they hear, they begin to believe. And when they believe, they begin to call, not on you, but on Jesus. And those who call are saved. This is what Romans teaches us. It's what it teaches us. And Paul was asking these questions because there was a need. There was a need to go into the nations. There was a need, and he was doing it. But most were content not to. I know our climate's different today, though, right? It's not. It's not. We view missions as a special calling, and it should be the full-time habit of all Christians. The only question is, where, where's your mission? I said, it's wherever you are. If you're going to be in Mexico this week, then do missions in Mexico. But if you're going to be standing next to your neighbor in Sugarland, then do missions right there. Please don't go to my church for a year and not invite anybody. Please don't do that. You're wasting my time. Don't do it. Say, Eric, I thought the point wasn't for the church to grow. It is not. 
The, the point is not that the church grow. The point is that the kingdom grow. And the other kingdom is, friends. The other kingdom is. Do you know why Islam is spreading through our jails? Because people go there and preach it. And when they preach it, people believe it. You know why Christianity is not spreading through our jails? Not being preached. Think about it. Or they're preaching something that's not really Christianity. Guys, why are you being invested in with all of these things? This is why. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I yield back balance of my time. Mr. Forbes. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, on April 6th of this year, the President of the United States traveled halfway around the globe and in the nation of Turkey essentially proclaimed that the United States was not a Judeo-Christian nation. Now, I don't challenge his right to do that, nor do I dispute the fact that that is what he believes. But I wish that he had asked and answered two questions when he did that. The first question was whether or not we ever considered ourselves a Judeo-Christian nation. And the second one is if we did, what was that moment in time where we ceased to be so? If you ask the first question, Mr. Speaker, you find that the very first act of the first Congress in the United States was to bring in a minister and have Congress led in prayer and afterwards read four chapters out of the Bible. A few years later, when we unanimously declared our independence, we made certain that the rights in there were given to us by our Creator. When the treaty was signed in the Treaty of Paris in 1783 that ended the Revolutionary War and birthed this nation, the signers of that document made clear that it began with this phrase, in the name of the most holy and undivided Trinity. When our Constitution was signed, the signers made sure that they punctuated the end of it by saying, in the year of our Lord, 1787. And a hundred years later, in the Supreme Court case of Holy Trinity Church versus the United States, the Supreme Court indicated after recounting the long history of faith in this country that we were even a Christian nation. President George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, Abraham Lincoln, William McKinley, Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, Herbert Hoover, Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, Dwight Eisenhower, John Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, all disagreed with the President's comments and indicated how that the Bible and Judeo-Christian principles were so important in this nation. And Franklin Roosevelt even led this nation in a six-minute prayer before the invasion of perhaps the greatest battle in history in the invasion of Normandy and asked for God's protection. And after that war, when Congress came together and said, where are we going to put our trust? It wasn't in our weapon systems or our economy or our great decisions here, but it was in God we trust, which is emboldened directly behind you. So if, in fact, we were a nation that was birthed on those Judeo-Christian principles, what was that moment in time when we ceased to so be? What a great question. I want to tell you that as enlightened as that man is, he comes to a very wrong conclusion. That's why I stopped the video. He comes to the conclusion that we are still a great Judeo-Christian nation and that it cannot be rooted out of the fabric of America, that it simply is. I would submit to you that Barack Obama was right. And the reason that he's right is there is no spirit-led church that is the majority voice in this nation. 
just because we're not the majority does not mean that we cannot have a major influence on the world. Jesus did not have a mega church. He was not a leader of a majority. For that matter, neither was Muhammad when he began his religion. But I can tell you, if we sit and do nothing, while the powers of darkness rise all around us, if we sit and sing songs about setting captives free, but do nothing to actually set captives free, it's not much different than Nero fiddling, watching Rome burn. We've deluded ourselves. Friends, Christians make converts. We do. We go make disciples, and the reason that we do is because our Lord told us to. Look at Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Do you remember the song we sang as kids? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. What happened? What happened to it? Well, we became self-conscious as we got older, apparently. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You want to win people over? Do good things in the name of Jesus for them and tell them why. Witness. Witness everywhere you go. And when it is necessary, use words. Your life should be a witness. Words should be the accent on that witness. This is our calling. We cannot go a decade and not have made a disciple and think that we're doing well. How could we believe that? That's also data denial. Matthew 28, 19 should be read in every church and every service. Therefore, go and make disciples. So ask yourself something, saints. When you get bored in church, when you would rather be doing something else, is it because you are here but not doing what you are called to do? Well, of course you're going to be bored. If you make me an engineer, but I don't do the things engineer does, and I sit in my office all day, what am I going to be? Bored. If I'm called to play on a football team, but I just sit on a bench and I don't make practices, what am I going to be? Bored. Of course. Get in the game. Throw some logs on the fire. Put yourself out there for the gospel. Dear God, risk something for Him. Something. Well, you know, I wrote a check. I put it in the offering. Well, good for you. Good for you. I'm sure that that will win him over, man. That's what he always wanted was your money, right? Look, this is a church full of people that are catching a vision. But I have been in this situation before. And you can look back, and 15 years later, there were a lot there that never did anything with it. Never did anything with it. What makes one go out and advance the gospel and the other sit on their hands? passion, desire, hunger. I'm saying if you think it can't be done, get out of the way because I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it for the rest of my life and I'm inviting you to do it. You know why we have seen seven people filled with the Holy Ghost in five days? Because we began to pray and decide it could be done. That's why. Amen. The only thing that made this seven days different than the other is I was provoked to envy when I watched disciples of mine with people that are getting filled with the Holy Ghost. So I taught her to do this. I can surely do it. So I didn't leave until I'd done it. You know? All of those thoughts, well, I don't know if he's ready, and it hadn't been explained. He's bigger than me. He's older than me. It was a church that wasn't mine. There was a pastor there who didn't want it. You know what? I didn't care. 
I just want to see something happen for the Lord. And I stepped out for him and it happened. He has called me every day since then and said thank you. Isn't that an amazing thing? We have a foundations meeting the other night. We could just pray and go home. I just didn't want to. I felt as if we had not hit our stride yet. Felt like it just wasn't time yet. We couldn't, we can't just go home having another meeting. And so you know what? We tried. And three people got filled with the Holy Ghost. Had a marriage counseling meeting that I just, you know, this is good and all, but feels like we're missing something. Y'all want to pray? When they said yes, I knew I had them. <laughs> I knew I had them. We had some struggles. You know what? Christians started to show up outside our house. They started praying in my driveway. And we didn't quit till we got where we needed to be. Amen. Church, this is what the Lord wants out of us. Amen. That's what He's building in us. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. You cannot teach people to obey what you are not doing. Surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. We have been sent and we must preach. We must preach so that they can hear. Those who hear will believe. And when they believe, they will call. And when they call, the Lord will be quick to save. This is how the gospel was designed, friends. This is what it is supposed to be. You can't get to step two if you never got to step one. We cannot have people believing and you doing nothing. Charlie Brown gave me a vision that he had in the early 90s. He didn't write those things down very much, but I had a feeling it was important when he gave it to me. He couldn't choke out the words without crying, and before long I was crying too. Because it was all about a man of God standing and speaking to the church saying, Wake! Wake! And I could feel it reverberating in my spirit. And the church lying there in shabby clothes, tired, couldn't be woken. And a man was crying out to act in the name of the Lord, to do something in the name of the Lord. And the church was saying, when Jesus comes, he will do it. Friends, we cannot wait for the return of the Lord for him to do the work he gave you 2,000 years to do. It does not work that way. And it never has. The wheels of revival are greased with the blood of the saints. I know that's not pretty. It's not popular. But when we love not our lives so much as to shrink back from death, the Holy Ghost will break out and do the rest of the work. But it requires us to act. And you know what is in the way? I'm just going to tell you something you don't want to hear. What is in the way is all of our comfort. What is in the way is all of our luxury, all of our laziness, and all of our excuses. And it has to stop somewhere. Each day that we have done something for the Lord in these last few days... I wanted to do something else. I mean, that's just the truth. My buddies for marriage counseling showed up a little bit early. I didn't get to eat. I kind of like to eat. How important is that, though? Then I kept glancing at my watch, having a good spirit-led conversation, but I'm thinking, it's late, I'm tired. We got to pray for another two and a half hours. It was worth it. 
It was so worth it. It always requires you to put down your flesh, your desires, and lift up the Lord, and it is always worth it. I'm telling you, dare. Dare to try. We can sit in our houses and get what we've always gotten. We can watch this as armies surround Jerusalem. Or you can be courageous and do something about it. Amen. We've educated ourselves right out of obedience. We know so much and do so little. You remember what it was like to be first born again? I got arrested that weekend. <laughs> I ran straight to the mall. Everybody that I found, I was telling about Jesus. And I didn't know anything to tell them other than what had happened to me. Half of it was wrong, but you know what? It's a whole lot easier to correct somebody who's in motion than somebody who is lying dormant. Let's get in motion. I'm trying to provoke you. I'm trying to arouse you. I'm trying to show you it can be done. All the great men of God's days have passed. Wilkerson went to be with Jesus. Ravenhill went to be with Jesus. Smith Wigglesworth went to be with Jesus. Finney's with Jesus. Even my days with Jesus. Now's your time. Make the most of it. We only have so many hours which we can work. And you don't know how many it's going to be. Could be tomorrow your life is required of you. Could be cancer. Could be a gunshot. I have no idea, but I know this. We all have an appointment with the box. And once we're there, our deeds will speak a message about us for an eternity. And I want mine to speak well. I want them to say, this man lived for the Lord. I'm inviting you to do the same. Y'all stand to your feet. Please look at the screen one more time. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of truth. Our God wants all men to be saved. He wants all to come to a knowledge of the truth. The question is, is our heart the same as his? Do you really want what he wants? Does your heart break for the lost? Do you even think about it during your day? Or do we simply say the Lord will do it if he wants it done? He desires that all men be saved and his agent on the earth to do that. It's you. I've been as far away as jungles in India. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is go knock on your neighbor's door. We say we have a gospel-hardened land, and we probably do. But you can start with one life at a time. That's what I did when I got here. And all of you are standing here because of that. I want you to know that every person that I talked to laughed at me. The other pastors discouraged me. The people that came from other states to encourage me in the work here said, there's nobody here, you should leave. But where would our church be if we gave up? You have to start somewhere. If you got a spouse, you got a good thing. Amen. you got somebody already to encourage you. If you're single, you should never be alone. You have a church body around you. Join hands with somebody like David did with Jonathan and say, we can take that hill. Yes. We will go through Cena. We will go through Bozos. We will go through suffering and we will go through glory. But by the grace of God, we will get it done. Sure. 
Go make a disciple. Bring them to church. So, well, I don't know if they're going to make it. Well, if you don't try, that's certainly what they're dead already. They are dead already. What do we have to lose? Make a disciple. Make one. I don't feel qualified. When will you ever be qualified if you're not qualified now? We can do this. We can do it. And it's not to build the six flags over Jesus. It's to build something he'll be proud of. We can do this. He desires that they be saved. For there is one God and one mediator. It's not Muhammad. Between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for how many men? Oh, oh it's our job to tell him. The testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. You were called to announce something. And you were sent with a message. But we have to go. We have to do it. And I'm not talking foreign missions. I'm talking right here in your own backyard. How could we go win the whole world and lose our own household? But it's happening. It is happening right now all around us. Next time I see somebody making a fuss in a burqa or anything else, I'm going to go have a blast. You don't know what to say? Speak in other tongues. It's a start. If you can't speak in other tongues yet, come see me. We're on a roll. My goodness. Time got away from us. Y'all want to pray? Yes. Yeah.